Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 13. And this evening we begin this 13th chapter. And I suppose you're probably tired by now of hearing me use words like fascinating and incredible and mind-boggling and unimaginable. But it seems as we go deeper and deeper into our study of Revelation, there are just so many things that captivate our attention and just bring us to amazement when we think about what's coming on the world scene when Jesus comes back again. For three messages, I've been dealing with uh, Star Wars, that battle that takes place in the heavens between the angels of God and evil angels, powerful spirit beings, and I simply ran out of ways to describe that. And so I have to repeat the adjective sometimes and just tell you that Star Wars brings on another incredible chapter in the book of Revelation. If there's one part of Revelation I think that people really want to know about, it's this part, and that is about the Antichrist. And I've titled the message tonight and these next uh, three messages on the subject, The A in Abomination. And you might have already guessed that I was going to talk about the Antichrist, or you read a little bit of, he- a little bit of head uh, in this. The A is... The Antichrist, and he's the subject of the next several chapters that we have in Revelation. If there is a dominant question that I receive about Revelation, it's this. Who is the Antichrist? Who do you think that the Antichrist is? And people ask me that, and they say, well, is he alive now? Is there anyone that we could look at now and say this person has characteristics and he could be the Antichrist? I'll have to tell you that I have no special insight into this. And until this last political mess that we ran into with both political parties in America, I would have thought that just about any Democrat had the potential to be the Antichrist. But now uh, I've seen what the Republicans have to offer up, and I think that they have an equal shot at it. So uh, that's why we're so blessed in having a fair and balanced uh, political system. Both sides are equal opportunity offenders, and they can uh, produce well-qualified candidates for this. But I do joke about it a little bit, and and, uh, sometimes I might even refer occasionally to uh, President Obama Obama being the Antichrist. Well, I I, I don't really think that President Obama is the Antichrist. I think he does have some similarities, and I'm going to point that out to you. And that that by no means says that, that he above anyone else that we have in the United States doesn't have these kinds of characteristics. But we see some things that are happening on the political scene right now that show us, uh, well, are kind of an indicator of what the Antichrist will do. I really don't believe that there is any American who will be the Antichrist, and I'll explain that a little bit later on as we get into the study uh, sometime in a few weeks about why I say that. But I think there are some similarities when we uh, look at President Obama. And that is when anyone uh, looks to a single man as a political savior, when a person very quickly rises out of economic and uh, political turmoil and out of chaos, and when a person touts the virtues of a pluralistic society, and when a person is adored in other places of the world besides in his own country, when a person is able to take unprecedented political power and ignore the checks and balances of our country without anyone seriously challenging him, when truth is evasive and people are made to believe just about anything, when the sovereignty of the United States is challenged and we take up a more global position whereby we become citizens of the planet rather than citizens of our country, then yes, you have the makings of the Antichrist. 
The Antichrist is going to have all of those characteristics and more. And on top of his political power, he'll have godlike power. And that's because the God of this world is behind him. He will be a miracle worker in multitudinous ways. And when he's not working miracles, people will think that he's working miracles because he has such powers of deception. Then another thing I want to say about it by way of introduction is that none of this is a fairy tale. I don't make this stuff up. I, I was talking to one of our members of, a, a members of the church some time ago, and uh, there were some visitors who came to hear me preach one of the Revelation sermons. And they went away kind of, I guess, dizzy and skeptical about what they heard and said, well, those people really believe those things. Yes, we do believe this stuff. And uh, it's not as if these things are obscured in the Bible and you have to uh, find it and twist it out of the Scriptures like you do the Da Vinci Code or something, which it's not in the Scripture, by the way. But uh, you don't have to search very far to find these things. If you believe in the Bible and you claim to be a Christian then you can't take the things of prophecy that are written here and say that they don't matter or they're not true. If the Bible is not true about prophecy, then you can write it off about salvation and heaven and hell and about Jesus Christ himself. So we do have simply a massive amount of material in the Bible about the Antichrist. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about some of the places where those are found. Uh, And it's going to take us a while to get through and filter through all the information that there is in Scripture about Antichrist. And I'm really not going to tackle all of it, but I'll give you just an idea as we go through the study how much that the Bible talks about the subject. And so we're going to prepare for this by reading the first 13, or first 10 verses, I should say, of chapter number 13. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. If you look in your Bibles there at... Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority." And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months." And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in, the he- in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you uh, once again to be able to open your word and to speak from the book of Revelation. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand this text better, to see what is coming into the world for those who are left behind here having not received Christ as their Savior. And I do pray, Lord, tonight that if there's anyone here who has 
not received you as Savior. They'd recognize this terrible time that's coming and the political turmoil and the chaos that's coming to the world, but most of all, the spiritual chaos that is coming. And I just pray, Lord, that you might even speak to some soul tonight. Blessed through this message, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went down to San Diego. And it was one afternoon, and I was sitting on the couch, and I was waiting for them to get ready so we could go out. And I caught two or three minutes of a television program uh, that was on. I'd heard about this program before. I, I hadn't really watched very much of it. The premise, to me, was kind of stupid, kind of disgusting, I thought. And it's about two families that swap mothers. Now, I think they call that wife swap or something like that. And the title by itself was really almost too offensive for viewing, I thought. But I learned that this is really not a sexual thing, uh, and that is what is implied by the title. But what it's about is where two different families will, will exchange the mother in the family, and each of them will go to a different household with a little bit different lifestyle, and then you watch them as they try to cope with this different lifestyle that they put into. Now, I told you that to get to this, really. I I watched that for about two or three minutes, and on this particular program, there was a Christian man who had exchanged or swapped wives, and he got a woman who was an agnostic. He began to uh, give her a gospel presentation, And as usual, whenever you see anything that has to do with Christians on television, they want to make fun of it. And so they were making fun of this man and and, and the way that they do that. And this man was made to look like a fool. But he was talking to this lady and giving her the gospel presentation. And and when that was over, they were interviewing her by herself. and, And she said, he believes that if you don't believe like him, that you're going to hell. And she said, not in my book. And I thought about that, and I said, here's the real problem that we have. And that is that everybody has their own book. And my book is just as true as your book, even if our books don't agree on anything. And I'm able, and I believe in my book, and I don't care what you say, it doesn't matter what you believe, my book doesn't say what your book says. And these people believe in a book, their book, that has absolutely no authority behind it. They believe their book regardless, and it's as if... They have total credibility when they make everything up. Just make anything up, and what I say is just as, a, uh, just as credible as anything that you say, no matter what your book says. But I think we ought to be reminded that there is only one book that has total authority, and that's the Word of God. And we believe it because it is God's Word, and there's no one who's ever been able to disprove this. The Bible is simply a miraculous book in its consistency. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors living in very diverse circumstances. And yet the entire Bible has a cohesive theme. It's consistent in the things that it talks about. And you simply could not have that unless you had a miraculous, omniscient author who wrote it all. And so it's out of that background that John reveals this amazing story of this coming world ruler. And we see the immediate circumstances of his coming to power back in chapter 12. Uh, We see what causes this to happen. And the cause of it is a war that takes place in heaven. Lucifer, who is the angel that rebelled against God, decided that he wanted to make himself God. And so he became the adversary of Jehovah God. And by extension, he also became the adversary of the objects of God's love. 
And those are the ones that are chosen and redeemed by God. His adversarial nature is what actually gives him his name. Satan means adversary. And there's coming a time in the future when Satan will make his last power play to overthrow God. And when he does this, there is a war that takes place in heaven. Chapter 12 tells us about that war. And this is a war that Satan loses. And when he loses the war, Satan is cast down to the earth. And at that point, Satan knows that his time is limited. There's not going to be very much longer before he'll be able to, uh, much time that he'll have to overthrow God. And so he begins to work his worst work. He begins to do the uh, very worst of all that he can against man. He throws his full fury against the people of this world and most particularly against the chosen people of God. Now, chapter 13 begins the story of how he does that. It reverts back to the beginning of the tribulation. Now, so far, we've looked at the tribulation through God's eyes. But in these next chapters, we look at the tribulation through Satan's eyes. Uh, Satan was cast down, is cast down to the earth. And while God is working out his vengeance during this seven-year period called the tribulation, Satan is also working during that time. And Satan is actually a providential part of God's plan. Now, maybe people don't really realize that, but Satan works into God's plan. Because what God does is he overthrows the evil of Satan. He uses Satan, and he can use evil angels. He can use men any time that he wants to, to accomplish his purposes. And so God turns around all the evil that Satan does and uses it for his own purpose. So this is Satan's evil as he attempts to prevent the promised millennial kingdom from coming. Now, the overthrow of that evil, again, is the demonstration of God's glory. So we're going to go back to the beginning of the tribulation. And here we see the tribulation period through Satan's eyes. Now, verse number 1 of our text says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, let me make something very simple here before we start off. And that is that this beast that comes out of the sea is not a wild animal. We're not talking here about a sea creature. This is not a giant octopus or a squid or anything like that. The beast out of the sea is a man. He's the Antichrist. And he's seen rising out of the sea of humanity. And the heads and the crowns and the, and the horns and all of that are special symbols that describe him. Now, I want to make another point before we go on. And that is that uh, Satan has been cast down to the earth, and there's some controversy about the beginning of the chapter, about the wording. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea. And there's some who say that that should be translated as he stood upon the sand of the sea. And so that would mean that it's not talking about John, who's standing on the seashore and then sees this beast rising up out of the sea, but rather he stood on the seashore, meaning Satan. And so we would tie this back into chapter 12, and it's Satan who sees the beast rising up out of the sea. Now, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference which position that you take on that. I prefer the authorized version reading of it, but it doesn't make a whole lot of difference because it doesn't change the meaning of the text and what comes next. It may very well indeed tie back to chapter 12, and this is just a continuation that when Satan is cast down, then he sees the beast begin to rise. But the main point of it, is that Satan has been cast down. And in that state of having been cast down to the earth, he he desires embodiment. 
Now, Satan does his greatest work against man when he works through men, when he embodies men. And that's why you see so many cases of demon possession in the Scriptures. I believe that that's what happened when Satan entered into Judas Iscariot and caused him to do his dastardly work. The Scriptures clearly say in John 13, 27, just before the institution of the Lord's Supper, it says, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. So Satan entered into Judas, and then he went out, and he did that work of betraying Christ. Jesus said that Judas had a devil. And I believe that this is most likely what happened during ancient times when there were men like Nebuchadnezzar who made that great image and he told all the people that they must bow down and worship that image. I think this is what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian, desecrated the temple and then he sacrificed a sow on the altar at the temple. I think it's what happened when Nero and Domitian began to persecute Christians. I think it's what happened when the popes of Rome began to kill Baptists during the Inquisition period. I think it's what happened when Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin came to power. Most likely they were possessed or they were embodied by Satan so they could do his worst work. Now an interesting story that we have in the Bible that's sometimes overlooked that that shows us how that demons want to be embodied is that story about the maniacal man of Gadara. Now, if you remember this story, uh, there was a man who was possessed by thousands of demons. He was a madman. And the people had tried to chain him, lest he should harm himself or harm other people. But the man was so powerful with that demonic power that he was able to break the chains that held him. So one day Jesus came to the country of Gadara and he found this man in the cemetery among the tombs and he was cutting himself and crying out. And at that time Jesus commanded that the demons should come out of the man. And if you remember the story, the demons spoke and, and, and these demons did not want to come out of this man and be cast out because they thought that Jesus would cast them into the abyss. And that means that Jesus would throw them into the bottomless pit or into hell, and there they would be chained before their time. And so these demons begged that they might be cast out into another place. And so what Jesus did was he caused the demons to come out. They couldn't resist his power, and they went into a herd of pigs that was feeding on a hillside nearby. And in this story, when those pigs became possessed by the demons, they ran down that steep place to the sea, and they did their swine dive right down into the sea, and then they were drowned. And what that shows us is the character of Satan, that he always seeks to kill and destroy. But demons want to be embodied, and Satan wants to be embodied. And so this beast that rises up out of the sea is a man, and he is possessed by Satan. He's the Antichrist. He's the A in abomination. And while he possesses the smoothness and the craftiness and the deception of the devil, he also possesses his cutthroat, fierce, cruel, hateful, abominable, detestable, destructive heart. Now we're going to look at him. We're going to look at his career in these sermons. We'll talk about his ancestry and his character. We'll talk about his prowess and his power. We'll speak of his personality and his purpose. And we'll also see who pushes his buttons. And more importantly, we'll see the one who pushes the buttons are the one who pushes his buttons. Now, that's kind of been a long introduction. Uh, Don't worry. Let's see, we got, uh, it's about 10 minutes till 7. We're going to be a little bit longer than usual tonight. But I'm not going to go too far beyond the introduction. In the next 
part of this is really also introduction. So I'm not going to get real specific in the things that we're talking about tonight. So I want to begin with this. Uh, Let's take just a few minutes to discuss the prophecy of the beast. The Antichrist does not come to our attention only in the pages of Revelation. John is not the first one to talk about him. And in fact, when John first talked about him, uh, it was before he was given the revelation. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the scripture says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. There John is making a distinction between many who could be called the Antichrist and this last time, end times Antichrist, the final Antichrist that will come. Now down through the centuries there have been many people who stood against Christ and against God's people. When John wrote that particular verse, he probably had the emperor Domitian in mind. And he called him an Antichrist. And the emperors who came before him, Vespasian and Titus and Nero... They were also antichrists because they stood against God's people. And that's what an antichrist is. It simply means someone who stands against Christ. And as you go down through the centuries, you'll find many who fit that description. But we can go back further than what we read in the New Testament, back into the Old Testament, and there we find the Old Testament prophets also spoke of this person called the antichrist, that is the final antichrist that would come. There are prophecies that are sprinkled throughout the New Testament, but there is one particular prophet who has more to say about him than all the other prophets, and that's the prophet Daniel. So we're going to look for a few minutes at the predictions of Daniel. There's a lot of information from Daniel, and it explains uh, much of what happens in the Revelation, and we can go to the book of Daniel to kind of get an explanation for many things that take place. We learned that when we were studying the timeline of the tribulation. Daniel's prophecy was so precise that he knew exactly when the Old Testament period would come to an end. He knew how long that it would be before Jesus would come. He knew the year when it would be that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Daniel wrote all about that, and God gave him just some insight into all of these things. And as we studied when we were looking at the length of the tribulation period, we don't find anything in the New Testament at all that gives us the exact length of tribulation. But we go back to the book of Daniel, and there we find that the tribulation, uh, uh, figuring out all the information there, is going to be a seven-year period. Amongst all of the things that Daniel says there, he also gives predictions of the Antichrist. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Daniel. And we're going to go through just a few of the prophecies that we find here. We're, we're going to kind of leaf through these and look at some of the references. And I'm not going to expand too much on them right now. They'll come back up again as we go through uh, these messages. And we'll see some of the characteristics and the legacy of the Antichrist in these particular prophecies. So I want you to go first to Daniel chapter 7. And we'll read here some prophecies about the end times. Now, of course, when Daniel was prophesying these things, they were far, far off in the future for him. For us, they're somewhat closer to us. We don't know how long it will be before they come to pass, but they're closer for us than they were for Daniel. Now, if you look at Daniel, verses 7 and 8, Daniel says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And we'll talk a little bit later why he says a fourth beast, but what he's referring there to is the kingdom of the Antichrist. And by extension, he's also referring to the Antichrist himself. 
And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. There, Daniel was referring specifically to the Antichrist. And what he's doing there is giving us just a few hints here at the Antichrist's abilities. One of the things that he says is that he is full of eyes. Now, that is figurative language. And whenever you see this in the Scripture, uh, an animal or, or a creature that's described as being full of eyes means that this is a person or a creature of wisdom and intelligence, of understanding. We saw the very same thing in the book of Revelation when, uh, in chapter 4, I believe it was, when there were the living creatures that were around the throne of God. They are described as being full of eyes, and what they depict is the wisdom of God. And this is really one of the things that makes the, the Antichrist so fearful. And that is, he is an imitator of God. He has much wisdom, more wisdom than any of us have, and of course not as much wisdom as God himself, but he does have much wisdom. Daniel also says that he has a mouth that speaks great things. He's a smooth talker. He's a great orator. And that's one of the reasons why you know that I can't be the Antichrist, because I'm, I'm a bumbling speaker, and, and the Antichrist is not that way. He really speaks well. And when he speaks, he captivates people, and people are mesmerized by him. If you'll skip down to verse number 20, you'll see the same things. The first part of that verse speaks of horns, and that parallels what we read in chapter 13. The horns are symbols of his power. But look at the last part of that verse, Daniel 7, verse 20, in the last part. A mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Now, we just read that in Revelation 13, a mouth that speaks blasphemy. And then if you'll look in chapter 8, verse number 25, it says, And through his policy... Also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand upon the, or shall stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And that character was seen in Revelation chapter 6. If you remember there, there's the story of the four horsemen that come riding out, and the first rider comes out riding on a white horse. And this rider has a bow, and he comes forth to conquer, but he doesn't have any arrows. And that means that he comes to conquer in a peaceful coup. There is no war that takes place that brings him to power. He comes as an economic and a political savior, and he comes out of all the chaos and the turmoil that happens during the tribulation period. And so people look at him as the savior to, to get them out of the mess that they're in. But the peace that the Antichrist establishes very quickly turns into bloodshed. Then if you'll back up to verse 23 in chapter 8, it says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And that tells us that the Antichrist will be a military genius. And there's another kind of interesting tidbit in that scripture. It says he understands dark sentences. And most likely that is a reference to the occult. He interprets with demonic power. And he's like a medium. He's a bridge between the, the spiritual world and the physical world. 
Now, I want to give you just one more because uh, we, we could go through the entire book of Daniel, m- many of these chapters, and we could find statement after statement written about the Antichrist. But let me give you one more uh, uh, in chapter 11. If you look at chapter 11, verse 36, and we're skipping over some in chapter 8 and chapter 9. But if you look in Daniel, verse number 36, And the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Now I'll save much of the comment on that until we get to the last point this evening and we'll also talk about this some more a little bit later on. But Daniel talks about how the Antichrist will magnify himself above every god and he will speak against Jehovah God. And if you'll look at verse 37, it says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. That's kind of an interesting statement. It says he, will, he won't desire women. And that could actually be a statement that the Antichrist could be a homosexual. And that, I think, would be fitting, because what is our society even today doing? They're magnifying homosexuality. You know, I was talking to, a, I don't remember who, one of the members of the church um, today, yesterday, or uh, I believe it was, and we were talking about this very thing, how that when you turn on your television, that they're cramming this thing down your throat on every television show that you watch. Homosexuality, homosexuality, all that time after time after time on nearly every program. The Word of God calls that one of the most abominable sins that can be committed. And so it's only fitting that the Antichrist would probably have that kind of character as well. So that's just part of what we see in Daniel. And so we understand from this that this is not not a new idea. It's not something that we discovered in the book of Revelation and we've tried to wrench it out of there to make things fit our interpretations. And there are people who, who do this. They want to lay Revelation aside and they say, well, that's the only place you can find such things. And they'll look at you and they say, do you really believe that? Yes, we do believe it because it's in the Bible. And you have to take the whole Bible when you look at these things. And what the Bible is taking us to is a final day of redemption. And it's explaining to us how we're getting to that point. And we find this all throughout the Scriptures. So in prophecy, we find what Daniel has to say. And then also we see the pronouncements of deity. Daniel predicted it. And, of course, that was also pronouncements of deity because what Daniel wrote was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we have another person in the Godhead who spoke about this directly. He taught us about the Antichrist, and it shows that it was not a new idea when John first started talking about him. Who is that? Well, that's Jesus. Now, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 13, if you would, and we'll read a scripture here that is paralleled in Matthew chapter 24. Now, we're studying Matthew on Sunday morning, so we won't go to Matthew. We'll go and see what Mark writes about it in his gospel as he records the words of Jesus. In Mark chapter 13, in verse number 14, that's where we'll start, Mark 13, 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation is the antichrist one of the things that jesus shows us and we're going to read some more in just a moment so don't put it away but one of the things that jesus shows us there is the dual nature of daniel's prophecy sometimes prophecy has a near fulfillment 
and then sometimes it has a far fulfillment. And in the very same scripture, you can find both of those uh, predictions that are made. Now, when Daniel made the prediction, there was a near fulfillment of this very thing, the abomination of desolation. And that was uh, someone I mentioned just a moment ago. That was when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian, uh, entered into Jerusalem in 168 B.C., and he desecrated the temple by offering that sow upon the altar. He invaded Jerusalem, and he destroyed the city. Now, interestingly enough, Antiochus Epiphanes, the name means God made manifest. And so Antiochus claimed that he was God. That's the near fulfillment. Now, the far fulfillment is the coming of the Antichrist. And we know that when Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13, that he's not referring to Antiochus because that had already happened many years before. And so what he says here must be something coming in the future. He says, but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter... For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Jesus is referring to the last half of the tribulation, and that is when the Antichrist steps up his persecution of the Jewish people. And what we see here is the dragon of chapter 12 persecuting the woman who brought forth the man-child. And the way that he does that is to embody the Antichrist. Now, Jesus says here that he has power that is so great that if it were possible... He would deceive the elect. Now, before we're done with the study, we're going to look at Revelation 13, verse 8, and we're going to talk about the elect of God, those whose names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And I don't really understand why there are people who deny and fight against that doctrine because the Scriptures clearly teach us that God has a chosen people. He infallibly brings them to repentance and faith. And why people don't believe it, I don't understand. The very fact that God has his elect is the greatest hope and confidence that any believer can have. And so that's why I'm not afraid of any of the stuff that I'm telling you about tonight. And interestingly enough, we have another taste of that very thing about the elect of God in the last bit of this prophecy. Now, I want to talk to you finally then tonight about the preaching of the disciples. We find it in the book of Daniel. We find the predictions there. We find the prophecies and the sayings of Christ. But we also find it in the preaching of the disciples. They had already been prophesying that the Antichrist would come. Now, we've already covered what John had to say about it. And and he spoke of it before he was even given the revelation. But we also see the Apostle Paul. And Paul goes back and he echoes the words of Daniel. And we have a most revealing scripture on the topic in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's turn over there for just a minute, and we're going to finish out tonight by reading in 2 Thessalonians 
2, and we're going to see here the position of the Antichrist, conditions in the tribulation, and the disposition of the elect. So let's start reading uh, at the beginning of the chapter. It's kind of long, but it's worth reading. And before we're through with the study, we'll, we'll be back at this several times. But Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning of verse number 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition." Now there, it's speaking of the Antichrist. He's the man of sin. He's the son of perdition. And when he comes into power, people are going to look at him as a savior from all of their problems. And if it means that they have to forsake everything that is holy and righteous in order to obtain what the Antichrist is offering, that's what they'll do. And so the Antichrist will come promising the moon, and these people are going to follow him as if they're going to get it. Verse number 4 says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now those are nearly identical to the words that Daniel said. And what it shows is first the position of the Antichrist. His position. He's going to sit in the temple of God and claim that he is God. Verse 5 says, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? So Paul had already been preaching this. He told them the Antichrist was coming, so it's nothing new to them. Uh, John was not the first to write about it in Revelation. In verse number 6 he says, And now ye know that what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken away. Now what that is talking about is the conditions in the tribulation. It's speaking about the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, the Holy Spirit is in the world right now. And what he does is he restrains much of the evil that is in the human heart. The Bible says that our hearts are evil continually. And so if the Holy Spirit did not restrain much of the evil that goes on in the world today, then Satan would be causing his worst work to be done. Things would be far worse than we could even imagine if God wasn't restraining some of the evil that goes on. But during the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit's restraining power is taken out. And then the Antichrist is able to work to the best of his abilities to cause people to turn away from Christ and to uh, cause all of these things to come into the world. They'll turn against the Lord. They simply will not believe in him. And they'll continually do the worst that they can possibly do. In verse 8 it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And listen to verse 11. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's another description of the condition of wicked man. God is going to allow these people to swallow the lies of the Antichrist hook, line, and sinker. And God is not going to allow people to come to faith. Now, even though that they admit that God is the one who caused this, they recognize that God is the one who, who ultimately is in control, Yet they will not relinquish their unbelief. 
and God will not allow them to repent. The Antichrist will shake his fist in God's face and all the people will do exactly the same. Now, the Scriptures teach us in these verses that God permits salvation only for his elect people. Now, listen then thirdly to the disposition of the elect. And we find this in verse number 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember the context. We're talking about tribulation period and all the things that are going on. And God, or Paul writes that we give thanks for you because you have been chosen by God from the beginning. And so the elect of God were chosen way back before God ever created the first thing. All the way back to the beginning. And these are the ones that have their names written in God's book. These are people that are never going to follow the Antichrist. When they're saved, they're not going to turn to him. Many people saved uh, during the tribulation period and they'll be vigorously persecuted. They'll be encouraged to take the mark of the beast and to turn against Christ, but they'll never do it. And that's because they're elect, they are the elect of God. We're going to look at that as we get deeper into the study. But I want you to notice something about those verses that we just read, the last ones, and that is how the elect know that they are the elect of God. Were they saved before the foundation of the world? No, they weren't. Now, they were in prospect. They had prospects of salvation, but they weren't saved. They were saved when they were called by the gospel. And when they heard the gospel, they believed, and God designed it specifically that way. So it's the gospel that God uses to save people, and that is the very reason why we preach the gospel. We don't preach the gospel in order to give people chance a chance to be saved. We preach the gospel to bring the elect to salvation through the belief of that gospel. Now, that's just a start in this study of the Antichrist. And, and I have to use the same old adjectives. It's fascinating stuff. It's incredible. It's, it's remarkable. It's mind-boggling, the things that we find here in these next few chapters about the Antichrist. And we're good Bereans, so what we're going to do, we're going to search the Scriptures, and we're going to dig all of this out and hopefully make it more understandable to you so you'll know what's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the time we have to spend together. And Lord, as we look at what comes in the end times, we are indeed thankful that if we know you as Savior now, that we won't have to face any of this that is coming. We have our faith in you and will be taken out of this world before it happens. But Lord, I pray for those who are unbelievers and have heard the message tonight because I don't believe that there's any indication in Scripture that people who hear about Christ and have been given the gospel will believe it after the tribulation begins. And we see that as we've read in these few verses that a strong delusion comes and people simply will not believe. You are in control of who believes and we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign God over all. So I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to some heart tonight, that you would show them the way of salvation, and that they might not risk this of Jesus coming back and then entering into a time when they may not even have a possibility of being saved. Bless us as we sing tonight, and we praise your name for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.